Santa Barbara Public Health Director Dr. Vonda Reynoso has been a leading player in keeping the community informed and wary of the coronavirus throughout the past year. In a recent interview with KCSB, Del Reynoso spoke about the disproportionate impact of COVID on marginalized communities, the relationship between medical mistrust and vaccine hesitancy, and how to incorporate community partnership in developing effective strategies to educate the general public. Dr. Del Reynoso, thank you so much for joining us today. We're super happy to have you here. I wanted to know if you could just begin by explaining to us from a personal standpoint, what it's been like leading the community through a global pandemic and becoming a sort of local icon in the process. Um, this is something that um, anyone in public health in leadership has been training for. So we, uh, through my career, I have been involved with um, the H1N1 um, epidemic and the Ebola and the measles. And so uh, those are some of the, the, the pandemics slash epidemics slash outbreaks that have um, occurred in the counties that I have worked in. So I think that um, the preparation to handle a pandemic, no one anticipated a 14 month long pandemic. We've been trained, we know how to quickly assemble the team. We know how quickly to um, organize and, and bring together uh, a team that would be able to be quickly uh, respond in any, uh, any uh, natural disasters, any um, biological uh, disasters, any chemical disasters. But I think that the pandemic took us by surprise in the length and the duration. Um, I would have to say that it would be an understatement to say that it that the COVID nineteen pandemic um, is the is the single most um, uh, uh, serious uh, epidemic pandemic crisis uh, in our modern times. I don't think that any one of us um, in the field uh, would have been able to anticipate the the relentless demands on public health system uh, that we've endured, that we've witnessed these past 14 months. So moving on to the impact on marginalized communities, uh, this is gonna be a big topic during our upcoming panel. In Santa Barbara, this has been especially evident through the virus's harm towards the county's migrant farm worker community. I was wondering if you could explain this in more detail. With each case, there's contact investigation. So during the course of, a, uh, of uh, contact investigation, we find demographics. So when we were in the, uh, when we have gathered enough uh, data on our initial set of cases. So we had our first case reported on, on March 15th, quickly after within a, a, a month time, we noted that the cases were in North County. We noticed that they had um, Hispanic surnames. We weren't sure, um, but looking at the last names made us pause. And then the clincher was, but we didn't know anything other than um, gender, 
location and a Hispanic surname. Some of, of the cases we were able to find the race and ethnicity through interviews, but a good chunk we didn't other than by the name. So that was one, one um, that, that caused me to worry. Um, because we're looking at a very specific location. So we quickly began asking, where is this causing? Uh, wh where is this happening? How are people getting infected? Uh, are there some commonalities? At the same time, we were reading, um, uh, we were reading reports from New York, from Chicago, from LA that talked about um, the disproportionate number of cases in the African-American community. We, we weren't really hearing about the Latino uh, uh, indigenous uh, communities just yet. So we were starting to get worried. So then we pivoted and said, you know what, let's go upstream. Let's, uh, before they get into the hospital, Let's interview all of our cases in Santa Maria. And we quickly developed a uh, questionnaire about uh, who they are, what kind of jobs they held, where they live, um, how much information did they have about COVID-19? What do they know about hand washing? What did they know about social distancing, about masking? We were really wanting to get to the root of what's causing all the, the, the cases in Santa Maria in the Latino community. So I think that that in detail, um, collecting data really informed us. And so, um, we then overlaid it with, um, again, we were always consumed with worry because we saw the disproportionate number of cases in Santa Maria, again, in the Latino community. And then we found out in the ag community. So we did a couple of things. We quickly assembled um, the community and organized the Latinx. Uh, uh, and the Latinx and indigenous migrant COVID-19 response is a mouthful, LIMCURT um, task force, to really address what are the barriers, what are we seeing on the ground, how can public health quickly pivot and bring resources to prevent and to minimize the, the spread of disease. So we did that. Um, so we also collected data and synthesized our findings, and we went to um, Santa Maria uh, City Council. We went to our board. We went to community leaders and said, this is what we're finding. What can we do together to mitigate? And what we were finding that, um, so as, as the disease progressed, we got more information and, and the picture was clearer. Um, who was disproportionately being affected. And again, it, it's, it, it, it rings true to what we know about health disparities and it exacerbated in a time of crisis like the pandemic. So we found out that Latinx community members working in um, uh, critical uh, frontline uh, jobs like ag, like a food production, um, who couldn't stay home, shelter in place, uh, telecommute, uh, 
their the, the, the where they work really mattered. And then we also found out that the cases were likely to spread within a household because of the high density living situations that a lot of our community members were in. Um, and then we found out that, th so their job, their living situations, and we also found out that the cord, we geo-mapped all of our cases and they were really reminiscent of previous outbreaks that we had in Santa Maria where along high density living situations, not a lot of access to healthcare, not a lot of access to individual transportation, a reliance on public transportation. And so we were finding developing a, a picture of our um, of the vulnerable uh, uh, community members and quickly uh, allocated resources and became very strategic and intentional about how we were going to do the messaging in order to prevent. So also at this point in the pandemic, a lot of the conversations have shifted towards vaccines and rolling out the vaccine. So scholars have pointed out that vaccine skepticism has to do a lot with communication issues and strongly held uh, beliefs, which can make it difficult to convince skeptics with facts and information about the safety of the vaccine and its efficacy. Um, how is the public health department approaching vaccine education currently, and has this been changed at all or updated in any way? And um, so again, early on, we we uh, we're professionals. We know about, we know this, um, and it's it's similar. It's very similar to uh, vaccine uh, distribution for any of our preventable diseases, right? So um, we are also lucky in Santa Barbara County where the the everything that happens in New York, Chicago, or LA, we could preview what's happening. And sure enough, it comes our way. So we always look what's happening in New York, what's happening in LA, what's happening in San Francisco. And so we quickly can synthesize and develop our game plan. So we knew that um, because of the historical structural racism and um, that, that resulted in not, people not trusting government, even in the initial stages, we quickly realized that our communities of color are of and other communities that, that have been typically marginalized are not going to believe everything we say. So how do we overcome that? And we started by um, engaging the community that, um, that, that we knew we wanted to have access to the public health department. So we hosted, I believe the first really robust town hall in uh, in our county where we spent about three to four weeks calling questions from each community, um, their worries, their concerns, and we assembled a panel. And so we were, a, we, we tackle all the issues that the community members ra raise. So I think that, and it doesn't just stop there. It, though the information, the questions, informed us on how strategic our messaging needs to be. So we continue that conversation. And then when we found out early on that, you know, uh, community members aren't gonna necessarily feel comfortable going to our mass vaccination sites. So we, as soon as we were able to get more vaccines, 
um, we developed the mobile vaccination sites. So what we're doing is we are going where the community members feel safe. Like we're going to churches, we're going um, to community centers, we're going to housing uh, uh, communities, we are going to um, the, the swap meet, we're going to farmers market. We're that's the that I, I would say that that is the innovative strategy that we are currently doing. We are really going into the community where the community members feel safe um, and convenient. So I'm glad you've touched on that and how uh, medical racism has um, has had a history of mistreatment towards communities of color and marginalized communities. So can you elaborate further on the relationship between trust and health and how you can validate these lived experiences while still promoting trust in the vaccine? Yes, um, I think that we have to acknowledge that there's implicit bias in our healthcare system. We have to, um, and, and the implicit bias may come from a place of ignorance. Um, it may come from um, intentional bad actions. I don't wanna think that, but I'm gonna put that on the table. Um, so our role in public health is to really build the capacity of our community members to accept good, solid um, healthcare. And how we get there is to empower trusted community members, uh, trusted community leaders in that uh, community to be our partner, to say that it's okay for you to be afraid because we do acknowledge that a lot of bad stuff has happened in the name of science, in the name of medicine, and in the name of healthcare. And that's okay, but we're here to give you good information. And we're here to make sure that you have the opportunity to get vaccinated when it is time for you, when you feel comfortable, when all your questions have been um, answered, then we wanna make sure that you know you have access to getting that vaccine at your own time, pace, and in the environment that you feel protected and comfortable. We're not gonna impose um, it on you. Um, sure, I'd like to get 80% vaccination rate, but that presumes um, that's not, uh, that's presuming that there hasn't been inequities. That presumes that there hasn't been a lot of deep seated hurt and bitterness and angst by how community members have been treated um, based on the color of their skin. So we are good with continuing our efforts towards um, building community capacity to get good solid information using um, community leaders, using peers um, to, to, to be our, our uh, partners in messaging. So I wanted to ask also, um, following the pause of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, what are some common misconceptions about the vaccine that you've been hearing? Um, and how did that pause, if at all, uh, affect vaccine acceptance in the Santa Barbara community and on a nationwide level from your perspective? I think, I think there's been misinformation with regards to the effectiveness of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. I think from the get-go, when people, uh, the initial rollout of the Johnson & Johnson, people saying, oh my gosh, why would you wanna give someone 
um, a, a single dose vaccine that's only 60% or 65% effective, why wouldn't you want to give them the 95%, you know, Pfizer or the 90% Moderna? Um, and, and early on, the conversation was, wow, this is an amazing vaccine because it's one dose. It's, uh, you don't need deep uh, sub-zero freezers. You could stick it in the refrigerator. It's one dose. It's going to be so great for a hard to reach population. I think that the conversation quickly turned to what, you know, um, homeless people don't deserve the Pfizer gold standard because that was early on the conversation that the Pfizer was a gold standard. So then, um, you know, I heard, you know, homeless people deserve the gold standard Pfizer too. And I said, I, you know, we've never called it the gold standard. It, sh it isn't the gold standard or, um, or farm workers, don't they deserve the Pfizer because that's 90%. So I think the misstep nationally is really being clear that the, that, uh, the efficacy rate is comparing apples to oranges. The Pfizer and the Moderna was clinically trialed in a different time and space where variants were not rampant, where I think that that was people, people the messaging wasn't great enough for people to see that we can't really compare effective rates uh, between the three because they're very different. Um, and then I think that I think that we didn't extol the virtues of the one dose Johnson Johnson enough. So in a lot of communities, we have found that for um, people on the go, let's say for college students or people who travel a lot, the one dose offers some great great opportunity to be vaccinated because that you they are so mobile. And then we also found that um, that a lot of people uh, liked the one dose better because of the lower uh, lower reaction rates. Um, that it wasn't known to have this big, huge. You're out for three days. Exaggeration, of course. Um, after the second dose of Pfizer or Moderna. So I think that here locally, we try to really distinct that Johnson & Johnson is a great vaccine. It's convenient. It is portable. We can really, um, we can really extend it to a lot of hard to reach community members and community members who are, who are leading very active lifestyle. So what we're seeing in our own community is that the, um, the, the requests for the uh, one dose Johnson and Johnson is among the more, the younger professionals, the college students, the travelers, the people who, um, who are very active, who lead very active lifestyle. I think there are some um, continued reservations in our, um, in our Latinx population because of the misinformation that has been perpetuated. Um, and so we strive to address it, but here's the deal. For me, what matters is a community member wanting to be vaccinated. 
and we are flexible. We have plenty of Pfizer, we have plenty of Moderna, and we definitely also have Johnson & Johnson. So whatever it takes by preference, we will honor um, the, the request and we'll hold the clinic in the, with the vaccine of choice. But I do think that it's uh, that the Johnson and Johnson vaccine has received bad rap, and uh, it, that's so unfortunate. All right. Well, I want to thank you again for speaking with us. Um, that was our last question. But if there's anything else you would like to add, um, feel free to add in. One effective strategy moving forward in any future pandemics or crisis is really the strength of partnerships from multi-sectorial, multi-communities, and really engaging um, community leaders into that shared space of um, information sharing and policy sharing, sharing of power, um, of resources. Mm -hmm. I think that that is what we have built um, through this pandemic, that is the um, that will that will um, serve us well in the future. Thank you so much again, Dr. Dovernoso, and thank you for all of your efforts leading us through this pandemic. Thank you. Thank you again to Dr. Von Dovernoso, Santa Barbara Public Health Director, for joining us on KCSB News. Dr. Dovernoso will discuss these topics in more detail in our upcoming panel on May 18th at 4 p.m entitled A Year in COVID, Medical Racism, Care Disparities, and Health Misinformation. You can find more information by heading to kcsb.org and registering for the Zoom webinar. A recording of the event will also air on KCSB FM 91.9 on Thursday, May 20th at 5 p.m. With KCSB News, I'm Ashley Rush.